I'm standing at the corner of 4th Avenue and Adams Street in downtown Olympia. There used to be a little plaque, um, or just a hand-painted sign on the window here on the northeast corner, which is of the Clipper. But the window was broken recently, and um, they've replaced it. So there's no writing on this window anymore. But the plaque used to be kind of a memorial, or just sort of a reminder of what happened here on this block. And what you're about to hear is four voices that were on this block on that day, March 13th, 1959. That was 60 years ago. Four voices. They didn't know each other then, and they don't know each other now, but they were all within a few feet of each other to witness this uh, destructive tragedy. I went to school at Washington Junior High. I was in the ninth grade, and that afternoon after school, I decided to walk down to my mother's work at Miller's Department Store. There was a real downtown then. The Pennies was by the park, and there was called Miller's Department Store. My dad was working at the brewery. My father was working at the brewery, and they were putting in some new tanks. I had a carload of ladies, and uh, we were part of a church group. We finished, and so we were heading toward home. And I was the driver. My name is Ruth Weller. I was 14 years old. Judy Peterson, I was 13. My name is Douglas Connell. I was probably 15. I'm Joyce Barnes. I was 25. Woke up that day just like any other day, not knowing what would happen. 15 boxcars, 14 of them loaded, 900 tons in all. The five-man train crew had picked them up at the rail yard in downtown Olympia, pulled them the two miles up the track to their next stop, then parked the cars in the quiet of a wooded stretch of track cut into the hillside below Capitol Boulevard. They should have set the backup handbrakes. Someone should have stayed on that chain of cars. But around 5.30 on the afternoon of Friday the 13th, March 1959, they uncoupled the engine and left those 15 cars behind. The engine and its crew rumbled under the short tunnel at Custer Way and into the switchyard of the Olympia Brewery. They had more cars to pick up. And who knows, maybe they'd have a beer. This was 1959, and it was 5.30. Well, I just went to school, went home, got all dressed up, because I was meeting my mom for dinner, and we were going to go buy me a dress for something. Mother had gotten off work at 5, and it took her a while to clock out, to get her stuff, come to the car. And she had come to the car, and we were heading home. And we ended up going up fourth. The track from the brewery to downtown is just a 1% grade. The slope is almost imperceptible to the eye. You'd call it flat if you didn't know better. The 15 boxcars must have started out impossibly slow. But there was an instant, a precise moment, when those 900 tons began to move. You wouldn't have seen it at first. The sound would give it away. An eerie high pitch, followed by a creak, then a lazy groan 
Now you'd see it. 120 steel wheels, simultaneously giving in to gravity on a 1% grade. Olympia in 1959 was a small city, about 18,000 people. But it felt like the center of things. And until the freeway opened the year before, travelers from Portland to Seattle would drive right through downtown on a crowded 4th Avenue past the Union Pacific Depot, where the crewless train would soon arrive. The new freeway took a lot of those cars off the road. You'd be able to hear those cars on that freeway from where those 15 boxcars were rolling now. That is, if those cars were still and quiet, like they had been minutes before. Now they were rolling, at a walking pace, above the red brick ruins of the old Olympia Brewery in the river valley below. Two miles down the track, rush hour is on, and people are making their Friday dinner plans. All of us had special feelings for the uh, China Clipper. We decided we were going to eat our afternoon meal there. Well, the Clipper was not like it is now. My mother, my brother, and myself went to dinner at the China Clipper, Friday the 13th. At 5.40, the train, still accelerating down the track, left the damp tunnel under Capitol Boulevard. Doug's family and Joyce's group of ladies had already placed their order at the China Clipper. Judy and her mom were just getting settled there. So I met her down there, and we went over and to have dinner, and we had just started getting water and coffee. I was facing south. My brother and my mother were facing north. We were in at least the second, if not the third booth. If we would have been in the first booth, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you. We were in this very first booth right here, and I was facing that way. I know there were ladies over in a bigger booth over here on this side. Yeah, our food was in front of us. I was, you know, could glance out the window. I could see the, you know, the railroad station across. Ruth and her parents stopped for groceries on their way home. We started to park right in front of the depot, and a car pulled out right at the end of that alley, and my dad pulled into it. At 5.41, the runaway was up to 20 miles an hour as it passed under the new freeway. It had taken six minutes to travel the first mile, it would take less than three to travel the last. It's about half an hour to sunset. There was no crossing gate to lower at Union Avenue. No red lights flashed. Not even a whistle to warn drivers that a 900-ton battering ram was on its way. 25 or 30 miles an hour now, accelerating into the heart of downtown. My father went into the store, and my mother remembered something else she wanted. And I, she asked me to go in for it. And I was a very sassy little girl. And she said, oh, Ruth Ann. And um, she got out and went in. We don't know exactly when, but back up at the brewery, the train crew returned to the quiet spot in the woods where they left those cars. The official report spends just two sentences explaining that the crew saw that the train was missing and then returned to the depot but I think we can read between the lines a little here. The two-mile trip back must have been agonizing. Past the old brewery, 
back through the damp, dark tunnel, under the new freeway, around the corner towards Union. The crew trying to will the train into being around every corner, hoping that through some miraculous combination of switches down there in the yard, that 900-ton runaway would find a path to a safe, minimally destructive stop. But these guys knew better. Conductors, engineers, brakemen, they understood tonnage, and they understood grade. And they knew it was too late. At 5.44, the traffic light on 4th Avenue turned red. The rush hour drivers that had stopped had a front row seat. They faced the Union Pacific Rail Depot on 4th Avenue and Adams Street. It's the end of the rail line. A simple L-shaped brick building. Trains pulled up from the south along the inside of the long part of the L. Directly north across the street was the China Clipper. If the drivers stopped at Adams Street had a front row seat, Ruth, Doug, Judy, and Joyce were on stage. So I started to get out of the car. The meal had been delivered, uh, and we had just started eating. We had just started getting water and coffee. For some reason, I looked up. And, and all of a sudden, everything was in like slow motion. Everything just went boom. Bang. I tell you, the brick, the wall came across awful fast. The place just exploded. It, it, it felt just like somebody set off a bomb. Have you ever been in a car wreck? It was the darnest thing. It was like slow motion. I think it's just, I could see, you know, uh, debris flying. I couldn't believe it when we seen the freight cars. I mean, everything was falling in, the roofs and the, everything was falling in, and you could hear the jukebox. It was still going. And I was almost out of the car, and all of a sudden this cloud of gray masonry was floating everywhere and all over me. And I remember turning, and as I did, the people were coming out of the grocery store, and my mother said, Ruth Ann, what have you done now? <laughs> the runaway boxcars had punched through the brick walls of the train depot. The pileup of twisted metal was heaved across the street and lodged into half a city block of businesses. I do remember after the crash, it seemed like everything was silent for just a few minutes, just like everybody was standing there, everybody anywhere around was just, had their mouth open and going, ah! Oh. There were four of them that we could see stacked on top of one another at various angles. I remember turning around and seeing the word union so big I couldn't imagine it. We could see them inside the building, and of course we figured there had to be some casualties there because it, did, it didn't just stop, it went on in. The wall was inside the restaurant was leaning over and somebody came from the back and said, quick, everybody out the back, because you couldn't get out the front door. That was the place that you didn't want to be. I remember laying there and I was buried under everything, the boxcars and the table and dust and glass and I felt just really warm 
on my back, and I figured, oh my God, and I just, and I thought I was bleeding to death, and I didn't know where my mom was. When it settled, the dust and everything was settling, we just, you know, first thing we did was pray for, you know, thanks that, you know, we were still alive. There was a grocery store across the street, and the guys from over there came running over to help get people out. And they got to my mom first, and then she's like, my, my, my girl's over there. We went out the back, and there were people out there. Keep in mind, the fire department wasn't that far away. They were there, and you know they were taking names. I think some people did go to the hospital. I, I can't say that for sure, because I paying attention to my mother and my brother. Judy was one of the people that went to the hospital that day. She was pretty injured. But the warm feeling of bleeding to death? It was soup. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, wasn't tragic, but it was soup. We got taken out the back door, and I'm standing there, and there was this gentleman there that I had a... We were in school together, and I had a horrible crush on him, and he said, see me like this. So the mom started laughing. She said, well, I know you're okay. <laughs> Judy would soon learn that not everyone was okay that evening. We didn't, we couldn't see anything because they took us out the back door to the ambulance. We went up Hospital Hill then because it was the old hospital, and we were at the hospital already when the poor man that was killed carried across the street and died. They called his wife and she came up to but he's already dead, so. I need to see my husband, and you know, just she was crying and upset and hurt and it made me cry. Standing her just crying and watching her and they finally took her somewhere but that was pretty hard. Betty Dilly was two blocks away when the train hit. She was on her way to visit her husband before starting work herself. Kenneth Dilly was the station's telegraph operator. The 35-year-old army veteran, father of four, sat at his desk against a brick wall. The same wall that the train came crashing through. His body was found over a hundred feet away in the attic of a business across the street. I asked Doug, Ruth, Joyce, and Judy how the accident stuck with them. For me, it wasn't that close. You know, when it's over, you think, well, okay, I survived that one. Just keep moving. Coming to a stop sign where they're crossing and being the first car is always a heart thumping experience to me. I love trains, and I've been everywhere. In fact, I just uh, uh, went and paid him uh, for money to come back on a train from Yuma. A couple of weeks afterwards, I was we were downtown. There were, up the street, there were little shops, and we were in there, and their train used to go through underneath, under the buildings, and I was in trying on clothes, and... The minute it started to shake, I was out in the middle of Capitol Way in my underwear. Scared the heck out of me. That's why I don't like Friday the 13th. 
since then, everybody says, oh, aren't you afraid of Friday the 13th? And I said, no, I kind of think Friday the 13th was my lucky Friday the 13th. Thanks to Judy Peterson, Joyce Barnes, Douglas Connell, and Ruth Weller for sharing their stories with a total stranger. Go to welcometoolympia.com to see pictures of the train wreck, including from inside the clipper, where Doug, Joyce, and Judy were sitting. Look carefully, and you'll see that jukebox that kept playing after the crash. Thanks to Krishna Chowdhury, professor of math, physics, and computer science at Evergreen State. He helped me estimate the timing and speed of the train at certain landmarks along its path. Also, thanks to the helpful staff at the State Archives. Much appreciated. Careful listeners will know that this wasn't the episode I promised last time. And last episode wasn't the episode I promised before. I didn't want to miss the anniversary of this story. So I had to bump the planned story until later. This podcast is now brought to you with the help of my four-month-old. So things don't always go as fast as I'd like. Since my track record has been so dismal, I've decided to stop doing teasers about the next episode. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. The ending theme music is by Olympia's own Skrill Meadow. Find them on bandcamp.com. Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, the most helpful thing you can do is to tell a friend about it. If you've already told all your friends, maybe consider writing a review or leaving a rating on iTunes. I really appreciate the support. The jukebox at Cryptotropa near the old train depot is free. Thanks, Shauna, for that tip. I'm Rob Smith. Thanks for listening. Back soon. Back soon.